from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. The Flight of Gemma Hardy is Margot Livesey's retelling of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, set in mid-20th century Scotland. It mirrors Bronte's novel in structure. Both books are divided into five sections, each with a distinct setting and location. And initially, the story of Gemma also closely parallels Jane's misfortune. The Flight of Gemma Hardy gives us a familiar story of an orphaned girl who suffers at the hands of her cruel aunt and uncaring cousins, who's sent to a boarding school where, as a working student, she's expected to earn her keep, and who eventually finds an unlikely and unlucky romance with a mysterious employer on a remote estate. Now, let me be honest. I began reading this book with some trepidation. Like most girls who read, Jane Eyre was an important part of my reading life as a kid, and I wasn't at all sure that I wanted the Jane of my youth mucked with. But this was Margot Livesey who wrote The Flight of Gemma Hardy, and I knew enough about Margot as an author to give it a chance. I mean, there are the book jacket facts about Margot. She's published seven novels, including Homework, Eva Moves the Furniture, The House on Fortune Street, and of course now Gemma Hardy. Some of the fellowships she's received are from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Massachusetts Artists Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Born and raised in Scotland, she's lived in New England for some 30 years and is currently a distinguished writer in residence at Emerson College. Okay, this is not a resume to blush at, but it's also not as important as what I, as a reader, know about Margot Livesey. I know that she's always been a reader's writer. That is, I can count on her to respect my intelligence, my emotional capacity, my imagination, and my time. Like the Victorian novels we both grew up reading, she writes in the most lucid and elegant prose compelling stories about people I care about. I also know that Margot Livesey is a bit of an unlikely literary daredevil. She has a history of meeting and setting, or setting and meeting, imaginative goals for herself. Eva Moves the Furniture, for example, is a fictional biography of her mother who died when Margot was two. Here we have a young girl who's visited by two strangers, an older woman and a teenaged girl, that only she can see and hear, and who steer the course of her life. This is not a ghost story. It is, however, unclassifiable, satisfying, and speaks volumes about the strong influence the dead exert on the living. Margot created a similar acrobatic feat in The House on Fortune Street, which actually may foreshadow what would come with Gemma Hardy. The House on Fortune Street gives us multiple perspectives on the life of Dara, a young London therapist. The book is divided into four sections, each with a distinct point of view, and each paying subtle homage to literary figures and works. There's Sean, a Keats scholar, followed by Cameron, an amateur photographer who's, abs who's absorbed with the life of Charles Dodson, or Lewis Carroll. Dara herself, who frequently compares herself to Jane Eyre, and Abigail, who's inherited her father's devotion to Charles Dickens. So in a novel that's essentially about loneliness, Margot underscores the connection that's made possible through the continuity 
of the English literary tradition. It's a book that easily might have been a gimmick, but it wasn't. It works seamlessly, and Margot's use of the classics enriched the story and gave its characters resonance. So it was the memory of my absorption with Margot Livesey's writing that I overcame my initial hesitation with Gemma Hardy. I still began the book cautiously, adding up the parallels as they occurred. And then it happened, that wonderful moment of falling into a book when the novel enters into your mind and heart. The flight of Gemma Hardy took on a life of its own. Comparisons with Jane Eyre were forgotten, and Gemma herself became more real to me than my next door neighbor. I resented every moment I was forced to put that book down. And in fact, one day while riding on the Metro, on the red line no less, I actually missed my stop because I had my nose in the flight of Gemma Hardy. And I did not care. It gave me more time to read. That's no lie. In an interview, Margot Livesey once, Livesey once noted, when people first began reading and writing novels in the 18th century, one of the first things traditionally said about the novel was that the invented characters gave the reader a chance to reinvent himself, that through the life of the particularities of a character, you could re-examine your own life. In The Flight of Gemma Hardy, as with her other novels, Margot Livesey's encourages us to do just that. Margot Livesey. Good afternoon. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, we're here today in part because of Laura Bush deciding Washington needed a festival, but we're also here because of Charles Dickens, who really invented the idea of authors giving readings. And some of his most successful reading tours were in America, where he performed shamelessly, I'm sorry to say, and edited his work madly in order to read it. Um, so I'm trying today to follow in his footsteps, though a very long way behind. Uh, as this is the poetry and prose tent, I thought I might begin with a short poem. It's a sonnet called Scotland by Alistair Reed, and I think you'll understand why I'm reading it. Scotland. It was a day peculiar to this piece of the planet when larks rose on long, thin strings of singing and the air shifted with the shimmer of actual angels. Greenness entered the body. The grasses shivered with presences and sunlight stayed like a halo on hair and heather and hills. Walking into town, I saw in a radiant raincoat the woman from the fish shop. What a day it is, cried I, like a sunstruck madman. And what did she have to say for it? Her brow grew bleak. Her ancestors raged in their graves as she spoke with their ancient misery. We'll pay for it. We'll pay for it. We'll pay for it. There is my childhood in 14 lines. <laughs> Although I never had a radiant raincoat. <laughs> um, and I will say that I had to, I couldn't find the poem in my poetry library, so I had to go online. And I found it under Calvinism. 
but, but we didn't need Calvin to teach us about Calvinism in Scotland. We already had it figured out. I'm going to just read a few opening paragraphs from Gemma Hardy. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about myself and how I came to write my novel and how Charlotte Bronte came to write hers. And then if there's time, I'm going to read a few more paragraphs. And then I hope very much you'll ask me questions if you feel moved to do so. We did not go for a walk on the first day of the year. The Christmas snow had melted and rain had been falling since dawn, darkening the shrubbery and muddying the grass. But that would not have stopped my aunt from dispatching us. She believed in the benefits of fresh air for children in all weather. Later, I understood she also enjoyed the peace and quiet of our absence. No, the cause of our not walking was my cousin, Will, who claimed his cold was too severe to leave the sitting room sofa, but not so bad that he couldn't play cards. His sister, Louise, he insisted, must stay behind for a game of racing demon. I overheard these negotiations from the corridor where I loitered holding my aunt's black shoes, freshly polished, one in each hand. In that case, said my aunt, Veronica and Gemma can walk to the farm to collect the eggs. Oh, must I, Mum, said Veronica. She's such a... The door to my uncle's study was only a few feet away across the corridor. Hastily, I opened it, stepped inside, and shut out whatever came next. Not long ago, this room had been the center of the house, a place brightened by my uncle's energy made tranquil by his concentration as he worked on his sermons. But last February, skating alone on the river at dusk, he had fallen through the ice, and now I was the only one who spent any time here, or who seemed to miss him. Just inside the door was a pyramid of cardboard boxes, the remains of my aunt's several recent purchases. But beyond the boxes, the room was as he had left it. His pen still lay on the desk beside the sermon he'd been preparing. At the top of the page, he had written, Sunday, 16th February, Anno Domini, 1958. No man is an island. Setting the shoes on the floor and trying not to imagine how Veronica had finished her sentence, such a copycat, such a moron, I read over my uncle's opening paragraph. We each begin as an island, but we soon build bridges. Even the most solitary person has, perhaps without knowing it, a causeway, a cable, a line of stepping stones, connecting him or her to others, allowing for the possibility of communication and affection. As I read the familiar phrases, I pictured myself as a small verdant island on a gray sea. When the tide went out, a line of rocks surfaced, joining me to another island or the mainland. The image bore no relation to my present life. Neither my aunt nor my cousins wanted any connection with me. But I cherished the hope that one day my uncle's words would prove true. Someone would appear at the other end of the causeway. In 
1847, in Perthshire, uh, in Scotland, about 50 miles north of Edinburgh, a private boys' school opened called Trinity College Glenarmond. It had been founded by the uh, yet-to-become Prime Minister of Britain, William Gladstone. And Gladstone's ambition for the school was that, as far as I understand, it was either it was for the sons of clergymen or it was for young men who wanted to become clergymen. Uh, part of his ambition was to keep these young men way out in the countryside so that they would remain pure. And I cannot speculate as to how well that worked, but I can tell you that in my childhood, my best friend and I had a game that involved lying down in the middle of the main road and waiting for a car to come. And uh, we stopped out of boredom because Really, it wasn't fun because no cars ever came. Um, my father came to Trinity College to teach mathematics and geography. And he married the school nurse, Eva. Uh, Eva, who became my mother. Eva, who became the uh, shadowy prototype of my novel, Eva Moves the Furniture. Um, she died when I was uh, two, two and a half, and he remarried the next school nurse. There weren't very many women around, so it wasn't just a failure of imagination. Um, but I might add that I do have two identical engagement rings, so maybe there was a slight failure of imagination. Um, there weren't very many things to do in the countryside besides chasing sheep and watching boys with kilts go by. So um, I, from a very early age, was a great reader and an aspiring writer. And um, I wrote, like many children, I wrote stories. One of the first um, chapter books that I read was Jane Eyre. I plucked it out of my father's bookshelf because it had a girl's name on the cover. And then I opened it and the heroine was just a little bit older than me. Jane Eyre is 10 when the novel opens. And that was enough to encourage me to keep going with the fact that there were a lot more words than pictures in this book. Um, I read it passionately, partly because I empathize so much with Jane. The boys' school was a lot like Thornfield Hall. It had battlements and turrets and attics, very important attics. Um, the Scottish moors were not so different from the moors where Jane wanders after she leaves Thornfield Hall in that miserable period of her life. And um, within our house, Bell's Cottage, I had a very close approximation of Jane Eyre's severe aunt. I had my stepmother, who had two favorite sayings. Um, on good days, she said, a good child should be seen and not heard. And on less good days, which were frequent, she said, tis sharper than a serpent's tooth to have a thankless child. And that was me. Um, the year after I read Jane Eyre, I had an additional reason to identify with Jane. We moved away from the boys' school to the borders of Scotland, and I um, got to attend a private girls' school. 
It was in a most beautiful building, the former home of Lord and Lady Minto, about seven miles from the town of Hoik. Uh, like many private schools, it was a world unto itself, and very few adults came and went. Um, my life was not as miserable as uh, Jane Eyre's at Lowood School, um, but it was, for me, four years of, of not quiet desperation, very noisy desperation. And after four years, something wonderful happened. Um, the school closed because of bankruptcy. <laughs> um, and I regret to say that I went back to the school to do research, feeling that I ought to, I mean, to look at the building, feeling I ought to try to do justice to it. And um, it has been raised to the ground. So I'm afraid that licensed me to shamelessly exaggerate on behalf of Gemma. Um, all her trials and tribulations. Um, I went on uh, to study literature and philosophy at university, um, and then to spend almost a decade in Toronto, where I had uh, numerous jobs, including, I was just reminiscing to someone, uh, packing incense in a Hare Krishna factory. <laughs> I, I stopped after four days because no one would sit next to me on the subway, and it was embarrassing. And also, there were compulsory prayers at lunch, so it was quite challenging. Um, but in between all these jobs, I was, I was struggling to write, and eventually my writing began to be published, and eventually those publications enabled me to do something I had vowed never to do. I entered a classroom as a teacher. Um, and I discovered I liked it, which was a bit of a shock. Um, I was maybe, I don't know, 30, 33 by this time. Um, I, I still feel incredibly lucky to teach, and I have on a number of occasions taught Jane Eyre, always to American students. Um, that said, if you had said to me five years ago, you're going to write a reimagining of Jane Eyre, I should say, Maybe one of us should go to a psychiatric unit, and it won't be me, because I'm definitely not going to do that. But then, another example of breaking my vows, I was addressing a book club in Boston about Jane Eyre. The room was full of wonderful, intelligent, voluble readers, and um, none of them admitted to being orphans, none of them admitted to having terrible stepmothers, None of them had grown up in the grounds of a gothic boys' school or gone to a really difficult girls' school. And yet, all of them identified passionately with Jane. And I drove home that night thinking about Charlotte Bronte's amazing accomplishment in publishing a novel that for 165 years has never been out of print. Pretty, pretty amazing record. And what was it that spoke to people from so many backgrounds, from so many situations. And I, of course, I don't have a complete answer, but one part of my answer is that in Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte created two of our great archetypes. The orphan, the orphan story is all our stories writ large. And it's, if you read Freud, you can read his wonderful analyses of why so many of us 
Imagine we're orphans even before we are orphans. But it's no accident that some of our favorite literature, Anne of Green Gables, Heidi, Great Expectations, David Copperfield, that we have so many orphans in literature. Um, and the other great archetype she appeals to is the pilgrim, the person who goes out into the world in search of something they value, in search of themselves, in search of knowledge and has to overcome dragons, demons, disasters um, in order to reach their, their goal. Um, Charlotte Bronte did not come easily to writing Jane Eyre. Um, she wrote first a novel called The Professor, which was roundly rejected by quite a large number of London publishers. Um, what made this even more tormenting was that Anne uh, Bronte's uh, The Tenant of Wildfeld Hall was accepted almost immediately, and Emily's Wuthering Heights was accepted almost immediately. So Charlotte, who felt she was the writer of the family, was the one getting the rejections. Um, she started Jane Eyre when she was nursing her father through cataract surgery, which one doesn't really want to think what that was like in 1846. Um, and um, wrote the novel very, very quickly using the same material as she had in The Professor, but totally changing the angle. The Professor was from the point of view of a young male professor who was in love with one of his pupils. Bronte flipped it over to tell it from the pupil's point of view, as, as it were. Once I'd got the idea of writing a reimagining of Jane Eyre, I immediately hid my copy um, as far away as I could in my writing room. I knew that the last thing I needed to do was to look at what Bronte had accomplished in those pages, else I would be paralyzed. And I also knew that I wasn't going to have any attics. I thought at one point of calling the novel No Attics, but <laughs> it seemed too obscure. Um, and uh, one of the pleasures was trying to learn from Bronte, as Jo in her lovely introduction said, not just from her structure, but from the way she borrowed from her own life. So I kept pace with Jane for a while, um, sending Gemma to a terrible girls' school, uh, as, I had, as I had also gone to, so I could borrow from my own life. But then I sent her off in a very different direction, so that you would know she was her own character. And I'm just going to read a few paragraphs from chapter two where you can see me trying to tell the reader, don't think you're reading Jane Eyre. This is a different book. Uh, Gemma's father is Icelandic and he and her mother meet during the Second World War and are then separated when Gemma's mother moves back to Scotland. And this is Gemma's uncle, the beloved uncle who dies, telling her a little bit about her parents. My parents wrote faithfully, and eventually in 1946, three months after my grandfather's funeral, my father traveled to Scotland. They were married in my uncle's church. He asked if I knew what the word radiant meant, and when I shook my head, he explained it meant giving out light, like the lamp in the sitting room that was shaped like a lady wearing a crinoline. That was how my mother had looked on her wedding day, my father, too. They had sailed to Iceland that night. From her new home, my mother wrote wonderful letters. She had fallen in love with the country and with my father's small fishing village. 
she learned Icelandic and made a garden among the rocks. She and my father had come back to Edinburgh only once in 1948 so that I could be born in a Scottish hospital. The last time I saw her, said my uncle, she couldn't have been happier. I was born in April, and that summer, when I was still too young to crawl and the seas were calm, my mother and I often went out in my father's boat. I pictured the two of us in the bow, watching the waves, while my father in the stern cast his nets. But one day, the following spring, shortly after my first birthday, we stayed home and went for a walk instead. My mother slipped on some seaweed and, protecting me, hit her head on a rock. She picked herself up, brought me home, made a cup of tea and took two aspirin. By the time my father returned, there was a lump the size of a hen's egg on the back of her head. But she insisted she was fine, just tired. My father put me to bed and made supper. In the morning, she didn't wake up. For the next two years, I lived with my father. A neighbor minded me while he fished. Then, one pleasant August afternoon, he didn't come home. The neighbor said he must have found an enormous school of herring. He was following them, filling his nets. He would be back tomorrow. The next afternoon, I saw the blue hull of his boat rounding the harbor wall. I ran to meet it, but the man at the tiller was a fisherman from the next village. When he stepped ashore, I hurled myself at his knees, demanding my father. The fisherman knelt down so that his face was level with mine and said something that made no sense. My father had drowned. I came to meet the fishing boats the next day and the next and the next. Whatever the weather, whatever the weather, I insisted on going down to the harbor. I ran up to each man in turn. Surely one of them would be my father. Several times I tried to stow away on a boat, but I was always discovered. If only I was allowed to look, I knew I could find him. I will say that the death toll in the chapters that follow is not so high. <laughs> Else you can picture me writing a 400-page novel with a cast of thousands just to have someone to write about. Um, I wonder if, would people like to ask me questions or shall I keep talking? <laughs> people have questions? I know it's challenging. Well, maybe I'll keep talking for a few more minutes and you can gather your thoughts about questions. <laughs> um, I just want to go back a little bit to the history of the Brontes because I think it's um, particularly fascinating and I think many of us respond so strongly to their work. Um, the story has become legendary, but I only visited their house, Haworth Parsonage, for the first time last December on a splendidly stormy Yorkshire day. Um, I had the house almost to myself and I could see there the two, three things I think are worth thinking about when you picture the Brontes. The, the children did all their writing around the dining room table in a room really no bigger than this stage. And because this servant because the servant Tabitha said candles were too expensive, 
Um, they would just walk after nightfall, which came at four o'clock, three o'clock in winter, they would walk round and round the table talking about their ideas uh, for stories and for poems. Um, what propelled their imaginations in the first place um, was a gift of lead soldiers to the boy, the brother Branwell, Branwell the, the hope of the family and the ne'er-do-well. He came into the bedroom to show his sisters the soldiers and Charlotte seized one of the soldiers and said, this one is, this one is the Duke of Wellington and he is mine. And her sisters, Emily and Anne, each chose a soldier. Um, Anne called hers uh, waiting boy and Emily called hers gravy. I think you can see a different naming tradition in the family. And they decided the soldiers would go on adventures together. And that is how they began the communal stories that became those tiny books that fetch a fortune in auctions. Um, the stories of Gondol and the stories of Angria. Um, and all the sisters had to earn their living and um, they all tried teaching. They were very, very ill-suited to it. Emily um, left her one job teaching at a school after saying to her pupils, I prefer the school dog to all of you. <laughs> um, Anne and Charlotte were a little bit better at holding their tongues, but not much. And Charlotte decided that what the sisters needed to do was open their own school where they could, you know, choose the pupils and invent the rules themselves. And with that in mind, she and Emily went to Brussels um, to study a German and French with the person who became a giant in Charlotte's life, Constantin Hager. She addressed him as dear master, cher maître, um, and studied with him for two years. Um, she wrote him, after going back to Yorkshire, she wrote him passionate letters and we have those passionate letters because although Constantin tore them up, his wife, wise woman, retrieved them from the waste paper basket and kept them. Um, when Charlotte came back from this education, she, they'd inherited, the sisters had inherited a little bit of money and they thought what they would do to make money was write poetry. So they put together a book of their poems and published a thousand volumes with a vanity press. Um, the book got some really good reviews and sold two copies. So Charlotte thought maybe poetry isn't the way to make money and she directed Emily Ann and herself that they should each write a novel um, to become what was then known as a triple decker, which was a very popular form of Victorian publication. And that's how we have these three wonderful, wonderful novels from these three sisters living in their little industrial Yorkshire town. I'll once again say I'm very happy to answer questions. <laughs> Although I know it's intimidating to ask them. I wonder if in your, the course of your teaching, if you're aware that you've nurtured some young writers that have gone on to publish. I've had the good fortune to have quite a number of wonderful students. Some have published, some have not. Um, you will probably, some of you will have heard of Dave Robluski and Edgar Sortel. Some of you will have heard of Alice Siebold and The Lovely Bones. 
um, Susan Power, who was at the festival a few years ago, um, Whitney Terrell, Daphne Calate. Um, I have a long list of just wonderfully accomplished students and happily am adding to it all the time. Hi, you've um, talked about your connections with Scotland and with the uh, all-girls school. Um, did you have a connection with Iceland or was that developed through research? Did everyone hear the question? I'm say, taking silences, yes. Um, I very much wanted Gemma to have an un-Scottish part to her life, in part because I have a large un-Scottish part to my life. Today it's Washington, D.C. So I went looking for a place um, that she might be from, and I went looking for a place that might make my rather far-fetched plot plausible. So I auditioned a number of countries, um, Malta, Corfu, uh, Sweden, um, various places that I thought might be suitable. And Iceland finally seemed the most suitable for several reasons. In the 1960s, the population was still only about the size of the population of Edinburgh, around 300,000. They have a wonderfully passionate culture with their sagas and various other stories um, that have were written in the 11th and 12th century, and these are still enshrined in the culture. And perhaps most tempting of all, 75% of the population of Iceland in a recent survey um, claimed that they believed that elves still lived in Iceland. <laughs> Not everybody who said this had an exact location for where the elves lived, but nonetheless, they were sure they were there somewhere. And I thought, that's really captivating. I must go to this country where I might meet an elf. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say I haven't yet. Other questions? Hi. Hi. I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about how you picked the name Gemma? How did I pick the name Gemma? Well, naming a character is I was going to say as hard as naming a child, but I've never had a child. Um, but I have had many characters, and it's, it's very personal. And when you have to change a name, it can be very hard. In The House on Fortune Street, my previous novel, um, my um, publisher insisted at one point that one of my characters wasn't sufficiently macho. And part of the problem they claimed was his name. So I was reading baby books madly, trying to come up with macho names, which is actually not one of the categories in most baby books. <laughs> I won't tell you which character this is or what his previous name was. Um, but with Gemma, um, originally she was just two X's in the text. And then by about chapter three, I was tired of those two X's. And I thought, she needs to have a name that's a little bit like Jane, but not you would never think it was like Jane until you're reading the book. Um, I also wanted a name that overlapped with mine, and it has a number of the letters of my name, Margot, Gemma. And um, lastly, I think my husband is responsible. In his previous life, he was a marine biologist, and he had told me that a Gemma Gemma is a tiny but tenacious clam. And I thought of Gemma as sort of small and tenacious, so... The clam-like connection worked for me. <laughs> Thank you. Other, other questions? Other, yes. What are you working on now? 
Um, I'm trying after writing seven novels that are set in um, Scotland or London or between the two, I am trying to do something that uh, strikes me as quite outrageous and something that I would say my friends pretty much universally disapprove of. I'm trying to write a novel set in New England where I have lived on and off for 30 years. Um, so suddenly my friends are my material and they're not happy about that. <laughs> um, and I'm following Americans. I try to pretend I'm Nabokov. I sit on public transport writing down sentences I hear people saying and thinking, should I say your toast? No, no, that's already pass, passe on the red line. You know, it's very complicated for me. Um, I have no idea if these pages will, will see the light of day, but I am having fun writing a novel that's very contemporary, very much set where I live now and um, can possibly borrow the vocabulary of my students and my friends. Other, other questions or comments? Yeah. Hi. Um, you mentioned how your childhood can affect uh, what you choose to write about, but I'd like to know if there are anything like deep on a subconscious level that you can bring out through your writing, or if environment has also has a factor. Say, I know York is a very dark area, yeah. and to just talk about yeah. how those would influence your writing. Hmm, that's a very sort of private question to answer in a very public place. Um, maybe you could all pay me $100 an hour and I could... <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, bef when I left university, I wrote an extremely bad first novel while I was traveling for the year. Um, I was traveling around Europe and North Africa with my boyfriend of the time, and he was writing a book, and at a certain point, um, I thought, I'm not going to go to another cathedral or a marketplace on my own. I'll write a book, too. And then, of course, I had to think, what would my book be about? And I didn't have a subject matter like a history of ice skating or, you know, how Jefferson came to Washington. Or I, So I decided to write a book I felt amply qualified to write by 17 years of reading and writing, namely a novel. And one of the most distressing experiences of that year of travel was rereading the novel I had written at the end of the year. It was 400 pages about made-up people doing made-up things. Isn't, isn't that what a book is? But it was so bad in really every way. It was boring, it was far-fetched, etc. So one of my private rules for, for novel writing from then on became that I had to try to find things that were both publicly interesting and privately interesting. It couldn't just be privately interesting if I was going to reach readers. I had to look for that intersection. Um, and I tried to follow that in later books, so writing a novel about a woman dealing with her stepdaughter. Many of the people around me were dealing with invented families. Writing a novel about a man who finds a baby in a bus station. There were huge arguments in the press about Baby Doe and Baby M and who the parent is. So I'd say, I'd say if you want to know my deepest secrets, they're all in my novels, but I'm hoping you won't recognize them. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I'm wondering, is it distracting being a novelist? In other words, is it when you're not 
actually writing a novel? Are you always thinking about writing a novel when you're going through your daily life? Are you looking around, do you see, trying to extract novels and images from, from your daily life? Is that, does that get in the way of, of daily life? Um, I think it does get in the way of daily life. Um, there are so many things I would love to write about, but I want to remain on the planet of humans and I would be exiled if I wrote about them. Um, so that's, that's really a hardship for me, finding my way, I mean, respect, trying to respect you know, family secrets and, and things. Um, and right now I have a, a fellowship at, at Harvard and I'm bombarded with invitations to wonderful seminars and events. You know, someone who's working on robots that are trying to learn to behave like ants, someone who's researching Rachel Carson's work and the environment, someone who's researching the analysis of manuscripts, musical scores written in the 14th century during the Black Plague. And I'm, I feel like an incredibly ill-educated person, but I just keep stubbornly shutting the door of my office and writing about my made-up people who are not studying robots or musicology or <laughs> any of those other wonderful topics. So I think it's really hard being a novelist, but great fun. Um, we are about to run out of time, so if there's one last question, or... Yes. Uh, tell us about your writing process in 45 seconds or less. <laughs> Here goes. Um, I try to get to my desk as early in the day as possible. I try not to answer the phone. I have not one computer of my own, I have two computers of my own, and my fiction computer has never learned to go on, it's actually a very modern, very good computer, but it's never learned to go online, it's not allowed to go on the web, it's not allowed to do anything but write fiction, it doesn't play games or listen to music. Um, I encourage my students to think about the difference between using a machine and handwriting, how you always begin at the beginning of a document and tend to perfect your opening sentences, chapters, paragraphs, um, rather than going to the end of the document, which probably needs your attention and your energy. I send all my work to a, a good friend, a wonderful writer, Andrea Barrett, hoping she'll say it's a masterpiece, and she never, ever does. And when finally my work's about to be published, I pace my house hour after hour, reading my novels aloud, trying to find one more word I can get rid of to spare the reader's attention. Thank you all very, very much for your attention today. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.